Hello, and it's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, And today on the show... Hundreds of these little robots are doing more things for us than we realize. Taking care of the routine tasks and leaving us free to live and work and play in greater ease and comfort and safety. Ah, now those were the good old days, when the little robots knew their place, helping us do our jobs and even helping create more jobs for us. But what's happened in the years since, now that those machines have gotten a lot smarter, a lot handier, a lot more capable of doing many more things? I'm talking about the age of Deep Blue and Watson and Siri and highly automated factories and even the little Roomba vacuum cleaner. At what point does all that technology stop making jobs for us and start taking away our paychecks, actually reducing the total work available to us humans? I know, it's an old fear, way overblown in the past, but MIT researchers Eric Brynjolfsson and Andrew McAfee say it finally may be happening. In their new book, they say that behind today's high unemployment numbers lies a worrisome trend. Technology speeding ahead, humans falling behind. Eric Brynjolfsson joins me today to discuss the book, which, by the way, is entitled Race Against the Machine, How the Digital Revolution is Accelerating Innovation, Driving Productivity, and Irreversibly Transforming Employment and the Economy. Stay tuned. Well, thanks, uh, Eric, for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, you know, coincidentally, just as I was getting ready to do this interview, I, I looked at Slate Magazine, and they had just posted a slideshow, this is online, called The Robot Panic of the Great Depression. Huh. It's a series of old news articles from the 1930s with uh, stories about how machines were going to take over our jobs, fight our wars, eat our lunch. They right. had titles like, Is Man Doomed by the Machine Age? <laughs> so so we've been here before uh, during uh, economic hard times. Yeah, Certainly. I mean, technology, I mean, you can go back to, to John Henry in the 1800s, uh, who uh, had the uh, legendary battle uh, and ended up uh, winning the battle but, but dying at the end of it. P- machines have constantly been uh, encroaching on and, and taking over jobs that humans used to do. Um, and mostly that's a good thing. I mean, mostly that means that we we're, we're have more time for leisure and can move on to more productive activities. But during times of uh, depression from the 1930s and times of recession, like we've had recently, you know, the, the other side of that emerges, which is that people have trouble finding work. Well, the people who were worried about uh, the end of the working uh, human being, you know, back in the 1930s, were wrong. And uh, John Henry may have died with his hammer in his hand, laud, laud, but, uh, you know, the steam drill that took over just made bigger railroads and, and more business uh, for everybody. Right. Uh, but you guys, you and your co-author uh, Andy McAfee, are saying something is different this time around. Yeah, well, it's it's different in in the speed and scope, but fundamentally a lot of the same forces are at work. Um, there's a process in the economy of creative destruction where where many jobs are eliminated um, continuously by technology, and new jobs are created. And as long as those are in balance, we're we're in good shape. You know, something like ninety percent of the uh, workforce was involved in agriculture in 1800, and now it's 2%. You know, that doesn't mean that we had 88% unemployment among farmers. Obviously, most of those people found work in other areas. Uh, Henry Ford and others um, helped uh, build up new industries like the auto industry to, to uh, create even more wealth and more jobs for everybody. But this time is a little different, and what's different is that 
uh, information technology is advancing much more rapidly than some of the other technologies did. And it's also affecting much more of the economy. So it's affecting far broader scope of activities. Um, something like 60% of the American workforce is involved in information processing tasks. And it's hard to think of any of them that won't be affected significantly um, and aren't being currently affected by it significantly by the digital revolution. And in terms of speed, Moore's law um, has been doubling the power of computers roughly every 18 months, and that's been going on for a while, but the most recent doublings are more significant than the earlier doublings because they come on a much bigger base. So you put those two things together, more speed and more scope, and a lot more jobs are being transformed or eliminated faster than we've been able to create and invent new jobs. Now you propose, you and Andy McAfee propose in your book, that this accounts for uh, the otherwise seemingly mysterious jobless recovery that, that we're in the midst of, the fact that a number of economic indicators have actually bounced back. I mean, GDP is right. is, is much higher than, obviously, during the recession. Uh, corporate GDP profits... Is, is actually higher than it was um, ever before. I mean, we, we've, we've passed the pre-recession peak in GDP. Uh, profits are at record highs. Business investment um, has come back strongly. Um, but employment has not come back. Despite having more GDP than we did before the recession, we have 14 million people without jobs, you know, tremendous unemployment. And that does reflect um, improved productivity. I mean, almost mechanically, we've got more output with fewer workers than we did before. Um, the remaining workers are producing that much more output, and the remaining machinery is producing that much more output. So that is certainly part of the jobless recovery. I just want to be clear that, that we're not attributing the, the, the recent recession to technology. There are a lot of other factors that, that drove the, uh, the great recession, the housing crisis and the financial disasters and, and other factors that are global. Um, but if you look at the longer trend, say the past decade or the past couple of decades, then I think it's fair to say that, in, at least in our view, information technology has been one of the biggest forces to both increase productivity, but also dampen the uh, growth of median wages and the growth of employment. Now, um, productivity, meaning output per hour of, uh, of worker labor, right. I mean, that can also go up just because people are, A, working harder, or because industry, especially when, when uh, times are hard, tend to lay off people who maybe aren't that productive. Uh, but that alone would not account for the jumps in productivity and thus the, the, the lower employment that we're seeing? No. Uh, you can get small blips, you know, from people trying to, to work a little bit harder. But, but if, you know, if, if working hard was all it took, you know, you could go to a, a village in Africa and you could see a lot of people working really, really hard, and uh, they're not necessarily being that productive. So, so working hard is not um, the key to improving productivity or even working more hours or, or any of that. It comes from improvements in technology, um, and the technology of our generation that's made a difference is uh, information technology, digital technology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sorry, uh, was there a second part to your question? I'm, well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about some of the accounts that I had already heard before reading your book for uh -huh. the persistent unemployment that we're seeing, even as the economy rebounds in some respects. Right. And, and one explanation was simply that, you know, corporations tighten their belts, 
uh, got rid of a lot of less productive workers that yeah. they might have hired in more bounteous times, you know, yeah. and, and, and they just got smarter about who they're, who they're retaining and who they're laying off. Well, I think that is actually part of the sort of the, the most recent changes that have gone on. But the reason they were able to do that was because over the past decade or two, um, they've used technology to increase the inherent productivity of their organizations and in some ways to create a bit of slack. Now, in 2005, when times were, were um, not as lean as they are now, they could afford to keep around some of those workers who maybe weren't really as essential as they used to be. Yeah, yeah, that's my point. Yeah, exactly. And so, but, but if you think about that, that's sort of a story about the timing of when some of the, uh, the productivity kicks in in terms of measurement. But the reality was that that the productivity was improving throughout that entire period. In the earlier period, the workers were able to uh, to keep their jobs even though they weren't essential. And more recently, uh, companies have been have been laying them off mm-hmm. and, then not, and then not hiring them back because they realized they really didn't need them after all. Right, right. But uh, but, it, but in both cases, you know, whether it's 2005 or, or 2010 productivity was continuing to improve. It just was more visible more recently. I see. Now, a lot of the uh, economic numbers that you analyze uh, in your book are focused on the American economy. Yes. And I know that you are are well aware that some people are saying, well, well, you know, yes, the American economy is doing worse, and it's it's simply because a lot of the jobs have moved overseas, especially... Jobs involving uh, a higher level of technical competence and education, a lot of countries are doing better. And uh, it's really a game in which uh, we can no longer expect to own large swaths uh, of the economy the way we used to. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. I mean, first off, um, it's worth noting that that in some ways the economy is not doing worse. Again, productivity has, has been better in the past decade than in the 90s, 80s, 70s, at least going back to, to the 1960s. And um, as we just talked about, productivity is up, output is up. So, so it's, not, um, it's not all bad, but it is bad in terms of employment and also in terms of the, the wages of the median worker. And you're absolutely right. Part of that has to do with offshoring and international competition. And in the book, we touch on that, and, and there are people who have gone into more depth on that. Um, we don't dismiss that as being one of the factors. But in our view, the more important and the the larger long-term factor is technology. In fact, increasingly, you're seeing a number of companies are bringing back work. Sometimes it's called reshoring, bringing back work they used to send to uh, India, China, or Mexico. I've talked to uh, CEOs and executives who have done all of those things recently, using technology to work with uh, American workers at, and, and although the American workers are paid more than they are in Mexico and India, they're su- significantly more productive using this technology. Now, th- part of that, though, is that when they bring back the work, it often requires far less labor than it did before. Mm-hmm. So you have factories that, uh, if they're not lights-out factories, they're, they're, they're certainly much lower, much less labor-intensive than the factories in, in other countries. Um, you know, you, all of us have probably experienced this uh, when we make uh, airline reservations with some of the automated reservation systems these days where it used to be uh, perhaps an Indian call center and increasingly it's uh, an automated voice response system that can understand passably well a lot of uh, requests and so you can make a basic reservation that you wouldn't have been able to before. 
So ironically, I think that in some ways the uh, the mid-skill work that had been and low-skill work that had been outsourced is actually more vulnerable to the digital revolution than the work that stayed here in America. Well, well, you know, I mean, yes, obviously technology has displaced a lot of older professions. I mean, more and more, let's just take the example of commerce, more and more of the commerce that I do is conducted with machines without much or any human intervention. I get I get my money from the ATM, I get my I get my gas uh, by self-pumping, you know, right. and paying with a credit card. Uh, I buy online all the time without right. having to talk to a human being, and on and on it goes. And, of course, in the past, that kind of displacement was more than compensated for by the new jobs that were created right. by these booming industries. Uh, but your thesis is that at this time around, that's not happening. Right. So... You're absolutely right. I mean, we just had uh, you know record sales on Cyber Monday, something like a 26% increase over last year. And and uh, again, going to the airport, you know, you use, you use kiosks now more and more to get your tickets. So so there's a whole set of jobs, uh, retailing jobs that are about one out of 12 of those have disappeared uh, in the, in the last uh, five years. So there's certainly a, a major revolution going on there, and digital. Technologies is really the core of that. Those jobs are not so much due to uh, offshoring or outsourcing. Um, the issue is that we haven't created enough new jobs in other areas to compensate it for it. Um, if you look at you know the booming Silicon Valley companies, uh, Apple, Google, Facebook together have em- employed less than 150,000 people. That's how many we need to add every month just to keep up with population growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so by the you know even these these digital powerhouses aren't by themselves creating enough new jobs. Um, really, what we need is a, a vastly greater pool of entrepreneurs to create uh, not just a handful, but but hundreds or hundreds of thousands of new businesses to uh, to employ the people that are are no longer working in these other areas, other other uh, professions that we just. But if, uh, you know, if the paradigm we're talking about is that, uh, let's say, a a handful of human beings uh, making uh, very good money, I'm imagining, uh, can run a business assisted by machines without the help of a lot of workers, um, why would an increase in uh, entrepreneurialism help? I mean, isn't that going to simply replicate the problem over and over and over again? Well, you're absolutely right that... um Micro-multinationals, as we call them in the book, um, with you know a, a dozen employees, can now create vast wealth. And, and the, the people who uh, develop those multi- micro-multinationals, those small entrepreneurial businesses with, with global scale, can individually do very, very well by using technology. Um, part of the solution is to have more people involved in those kinds of tasks. I mean, if you look at, let's say, eBay, they're on the order of 600,000 people who make the primary living selling things through the eBay platform. And there are tens of thousands of others that are app developers in the Apple and Android ecosystems. So there is some scope for people to be hired there. But um, more generally, all throughout history, it's been entrepreneurs who invent and create the new kinds of jobs that employ people. Um, I, uh, As an MIT professor, I have to say, I can't think of what all those new jobs and industries will be, <laughs> um, but it's, uh, it's in a way it's not 
my job, never throughout history, has <laughs> have academics or government been the ones who decide what the new jobs and industries are going to be in our, our economy. It's the job of entrepreneurs to test and try lots of different ideas. Some of them are going to work out great. Some of them aren't going to work out great. And by parallel experimentation, or you call it crowdsourcing, uh, I'm pretty confident that we'll be able to identify new opportunities to combine technology and skilled labor to create value. Well, let's look at the more pessimistic scenario, the one that sure. says machines are inexorably biting off larger and larger chunks of what used to be sort of human territory, human yep. turf, uh, right. that once upon a time they did brute labor like uh, you know moving things around, uh, cars and tractors and trucks yep. and forklifts, and now they're doing, uh, you know, mental labor, uh, not just the relatively trivial task of giving me money when I stick my debit card into an ATM machine, but, but more and more sophisticated tasks, even replacing uh, legal experts in some cases. You cite the example of e-discovery where uh, right. intelligent machines can pour over large masses of, of, of legal uh, documentation to find evidence or to right. find, uh, you know, information that it used to take you know, a highly trained legal person to do. Just to take, um, you know, according to the people who looked at it, uh, one lawyer working with e-discovering <laughs> software can do the work of about 500 uh, lawyers. Right, basically. right. So that's happening, and it continues yep. to happen more and more. Not only that, I mean, there's, there's another thing that doesn't rely on really um, incredible machine intelligence, but simply the, um, the, the powerful effect of better distribution channels where, you know, say in education, I used to have to go into a classroom to see the lecturer uh, who's locally based to learn something. Now I can go online and see a great lecture from, say, MIT online. I don't have to go anywhere, and millions of other people can do the same thing. That right. conceivably would put you know hundreds of uh, teachers out of work. If yeah, we all... exactly. We, do, we have open courseware, and yeah. in fact, it's free. People can go um, and get open, uh, MIT lectures and MIT courses uh, through the open courseware website and and many other universities are doing the same thing. There's some that are doing it for profit. Um, software is, as you say, replicating um, the skills and algorithms and, and insights of, of lots of human experts. A good example is, uh, is TurboTax and the way that that has made it possible to, um, for a lot of people to do their taxes using those algorithms. And, and that's the people who invented TurboTax or made a lot of money and been created a lot of value, but at the same time, there are uh, tens of thousands of uh, human tax preparers whose services are no longer needed as a right. Bad news for H and R Block. Right. Uh, but uh, so, so if we take that pessimistic trend uh, and, and look ahead, is it actually possible though, though, to have that sort of staple scenario of the sci-fi that I used to read as a kid, right. uh, where machines do all the work? Human beings do nothing. Usually, in the books and comic books that I read, uh, that was better for human beings. We just yeah, well, that's exactly we just kick back. And those comic books, uh, those comic books had the right economics because <laughs> I mean, you, you, you call it uh, the pessimistic scenario, but it really doesn't have to be a, a pessimistic scenario. It could be a very optimistic scenario where um, a lot of work gets done by machines, and humans have a, a lot more leisure. Now, the, the reason that it's it's problematic is when it comes to the, the distribution of those benefits. And the issue isn't so much that everyone's work is sort of evenly being um, automated. Um, if that happened in a very level way and, and um, work of everybody sort of, you know, 
25% of our work or 50% of our work was done by machines, we'd all be that much wealthier and have that much more free time. But what's happened instead is that there have been big winners and big losers, and that's much more difficult to deal with. There's some um, people, whole you know, categories of, of skills and jobs where their work has been 100% eliminated and they're having a hard time finding something else productive to do. And other people who not only their work hasn't been eliminated, but it's been augmented. It's become fabulously more valuable than it was previously. And, and that's really the difficulty. Um, it's not that we have you know, more wealth with less work. That, that is a good scenario. It's that we have a big rearrangement in terms of the, the, the winners and losers, and that's becoming more and more extreme over time. If you'd like, I could talk a little bit about the economics of that and why, why that's happening and, and, and how that's happening. Well, yes, and I, I did want to bring in the obviously front and center issue of economic inequality, right. of wealth inequality that's you know, really uh, gotten a lot of attention lately, partly because of the Occupy protests, but right. has been a growing issue for those who are paying attention for the last 20, 30 years. Right. Uh, a bigger and bigger wealth gap, more and more of the gains going to a smaller and smaller percentage at the very top, That's people right. in the middle and the bottom falling behind, you know, year over year for, for quite some time now. Do you attribute that, at least in some part, to the um, technological problem that you've, you've pointed um, out? Not just in some part. I, I attribute it primarily to uh-huh. advances in, in technology. And, and the jobs issue we're talking about before is in some ways a symptom of this inequality and of the changes in the relative demand for different types of, of workers and different types of skills. Um, and what happens is as there's downward pressure and downward less demand for certain types of skills, and some people cases people get paid less. In other cases, they just can't find a job at all, and that's where some of the unemployment and, and reduced labor force participation kicks in. Right now, there are fewer people working than there were 10 years ago, despite population growth. And even before the recession, um, the employment-to-population ratio was, was growing much more slowly than it had in any previous decade, or any recent previous decade. Um, now, what, what's going on there is really three kinds of inequality, three kinds of technological forces um, that are all happening, one on top of each other. The first one is what's called, what economists call skill-biased technical change. It's technical change that favors more skilled workers relative to less skilled workers. So the ATMs or the airport kiosks or the many other types of technologies that are replacing routine clerical kinds of work at the same time are also augmenting the people, you know, say upstairs in the bank who are analyzing complicated data sets and doing, you know, billion-dollar trades. Um, So the technology favors one group versus another group. Um, Overall, the pie may be getting bigger, but for the group of people, which could even be a majority, that are having their their jobs automated, that's not a... uh, such, such good news that the pie is getting bigger, but not, not their slice. Mm-hmm. The second kind of change is uh, technology that's favoring superstars versus really everyone else. And that accounts for, for not just, you know, say, college-educated workers versus high school-educated workers, but really for the top 1% or top one-tenth of 1% versus the rest of the population. That group has received about earned about 60% of the uh, growth in GDP in the past decade. 
So really, the, the vastly disproportionate share of the growth has gone to a very small group of people. Can we can we jump in and just give a, an example of what we mean by superstars yeah. being assisted by technology? Yeah. So some of the more obvious examples are, are what's happening, say, in media and entertainment, where uh, you know Lady Gaga is able to to leverage her singing skills and, and performance skills and earn a lot of money that way. And there may be other singers, you know, that uh, I don't know, 50 years ago um, might have been uh, singing in their town or, or wherever, but now people can get you know, the, the best, the, the amazing uh, superstar um, rock performers. But it's also, it's also in software. So we, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or uh, Larry Page or Steve Jobs, brilliant geniuses who have been able to take some of their genius and replicate it through software and in some cases hardware through the internet create a lot of wealth for all of their consumers, but also get a big chunk of that themselves. We talked earlier about H&R Block uh, accountants versus uh, the developers of, of say, TurboTax. Um, and then what we found is even uh, in recent work, we found that, that CEOs more and more are able to leverage their skills, and the best CEOs of, of you know, Fortune 500 companies are getting a bigger share, a bigger payday than they used to, in part because information technology is allowing them to manage their companies more tightly and have a bigger influence over their success or failure. And that means that it's rational to, for them in an economic system to get a bigger share of the pie than they would have previously. You know, the superstar phenomenon, uh, by the way, I want to step back and just clarify, how does technology benefit someone like Lady Gaga? Well, right. it's the fact that there are more channels for her to distribute her work and blanket us with right. her latest, let's say, single, Everywhere We Go, and, and sell more and more and more. And that puts more and more smaller uh, musicians uh, out of work, or at least, you know, it, it, it reduces their market. So that's right. that's Lady Gaga. Now, with CEOs, I had a hard time understanding the parallel. When uh, you had, let's say, 50 years ago, a CEO who ran a 10,000-employee company, right. uh, multinational, how is that any different from a CEO running a similar-sized company today? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, so the intermediate step is to think about the people who, who run software-oriented companies like, uh, you know, Zuckerberg or Page or... Um, but but even for, for companies that aren't primarily software-oriented, information technology has dramatically transformed how those organizations are run. And no longer, first off, in, in size, no longer are they 10,000-person operations, but they're 100,000-person operations or, or several hundred-thousand-person operations that have global scale and are just vastly larger than they were before. The reason that a CEO can run such a large, far-flung company is in large part because of advances in information and communication technologies that would have been infeasible to have, have management control previously. And secondly, the amount of insight and knowledge they have in real time um, about what's happening in their organizations is much greater than uh, 10 or 50 years ago in terms of having real knowledge of what's happening on the ground. And Henry Ford, you know, said you could have a car any color you wanted as long as it was black because, you know, he just honestly had no way of knowing what customers in the different stores and different locations were interested in or had, didn't have technology to produce cars with lots of different colors. Now we have much more responsive information systems, both in terms of bringing information in and control out. The net effect is that a, a good CEO 
can make a much bigger difference to the success of a company than previously. And so um, boards of directors and, and stockholders are working more aggressively to, to pay the very best CEOs. Now, there's a lot of other factors going on as well. I, I want to just emphasize that this is, this is one factor that's happening. There are, there are changes in taxes and corporate governance and other issues as well. But the one that we're highlighting and focusing on this book is the role of technology, particularly information technology, that has changed the ability for people to replicate their skills through software and, and business process replication in a way that wasn't possible uh, in earlier decades. Got it. Now, now you've uh, just named two of the winners in the current scenario. Right. One, one category is people who have the, the necessary skills, the, the, the um, highly compensated skills that, that the information yeah. revolution calls for. The other are superstars. And then the, the third category is, is people who actually sell, uh, you know, what's called capital or, right. or exactly. equipment or, or, and technology. More, more specifically. Yeah. yeah. So the third, that's exactly right, um, that um, there's been a, a shift, uh, a small but, but noticeable shift in the share of income that goes to capital versus labor. And, you know, one of the easier examples of that is if you take a factory, in this case, uh, uh, let's look at a factory in China, Terry Gao's uh, Foxconn factory, where he has ordered 300,000 robots to replace some of the 2 million workers that he has in his organization. And he says he's got on, he claims he's got on order another million uh, robots. So you can imagine how going forward, if a factory has more robots and fewer humans working there, there's going to be more of the income accruing to capital owners and less to collectively to labor, to workers. And um, given that capitalists tend to be wealthier than than, uh, laborers, that also tends to exacerbate inequality. Now, now that's, of course, an old phenomenon, but you're saying it's... um it's amplified these days. I mean, the well, it, the, the share of capital and labor has, has been relatively stable in most of the past century. It's only the past few decades that those shares have changed. In the past, labor share was growing or, or was maintaining that the amount, the total amount going to labor was going up because workers were becoming so much more productive and more skilled, more educated that they were able to keep up with the capital share. Uh-huh. That, that's been less true recent, more recently. Right. It does remind me of the old story about the people who really uh, did well during the gold rush were those who su- sold uh, picks and shovels, not that's the guys right. out there trying to find uh, a big score. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> In the mines. Um, uh so, but is it realistic to think about an economy that consists of a bunch of machines, a handful of people profiting off of those machines and, and that work, and a huge number of, of more or less unemployed people? Does, does an economy continue to function under those circumstances? I mean, you know, Bill Gates, as rich as he is, can only eat so much food, buy right. so many cars, a, and right. live in so many houses. In fact, he can't possibly consume as much as a large number of people with the equivalent amount of wealth. Well, you're right that, that Bill Gates by himself would have a hard time consuming as much as, you know, um, a, a billion people who each had a share of, of, of his wealth. But, you know, the, the reality is just as, as an economist speaking, it is, it is possible to run an economy uh, with much greater inequality than we have right now. So we not want to. It may not be desirable to do so. But, uh, um, and you would have a lower overall uh, probably output and, and consumption. But, but that is possible. So I don't think that that's necessarily going to cause breakdown. 
I don't. I wouldn't advocate it. <laughs> I'm not saying that's the, what we, the, the society we would want to live in. But I just, you know, to be economically accurate, it's not true to say that it's impossible to run an economy that's, that's very, very unequal. And some countries do run economies that way. Um, and, and, and going forward, you know, you can imagine this scenario where where there's vast numbers of people who are who are unemployed or don't have work. And, and, um, but I don't. I'm, you know, that's maybe something. In the in the far future, you know, 50 years from now, and, and uh, to be frank, you know, in our book, we don't we don't think so much about the sort of sci-fi-ish world of of robots doing almost all the work. But looking the next 10 or 20 years, I think that, that I'm actually relatively optimistic that through reskilling the labor force, through encouraging more entrepreneurship, and through making other changes, we list 19 of them in our our book, um, we can get through this somewhat difficult time. And ultimately, a broader share of the population will be able to, to reap most of the benefits of the, of the digital revolution, the digital frontier. And so I would focus our efforts you know, not on you know, what's going to happen in that sci-fi future, but rather um, over the next, next decade or two where we can make some, some realistic changes in our economy that will allow us to adapt to a world where, we, where there's a lot more automation, there's a lot more technology in use, but people upskill, they change their jobs, and there are a lot of tasks that, that computers just aren't very good at, interpersonal tasks, tasks that require the human touch, still many tasks that require a physical dexterity, um, as well as tasks that require creativity. All of those areas, humans have uh, an edge, and the, the, the hope and the expectation is that collectively entrepreneurs and the rest of us continue to identify work that we can do um, and so we can benefit as a, as, a, uh, as a society from improvements in technology. Well, I want to be reassured by your optimism after you've put a scare in me. Yep. Uh, but I have to say, if I follow the logic of your argument, I'm not sure I'm, I'm all that consoled by what you're saying now because, yes, there are still things human beings do better than machines, but yep. but step-by-step step, machines are... Uh, improving rapidly, as you say, exponentially, right. uh, yeah. which human beings can upskill, but can we upskill exponentially year after year, decade after decade, century after century? I don't know. No, uh, no, and, and I think that, that over time, it, it, it's certainly true that mach- machines will be doing more work that's currently done by humans. But that's another way of saying that we're going to be wealthier and we're going to, as a society, we're going to be wealthier and we're going to have more leisure, and we can focus on other things that, that we enjoy doing, uh, interacting with each other, and maybe in some cases getting paid for it, and maybe in some cases not, while uh, the machinery does the, the, the work of, of providing us food, clothing, shelter, and a lot of the other uh, things that, that we need to survive, there's an issue in terms of how we organize society so that we, we, we benefit from that, so that the, the benefits all, don't all go to a small group of people. Uh, and if we want the benefits to be more broadly distributed, in the medium term, we need to work on making sure that more people can contribute uh, productively to society. I, I think that's worth repeating, that uh, if I follow uh, your line of reasoning, yep. uh, it's not that machines taking over work per se has to be a bad thing. In fact, right. in fact, the comic book 
uh, utopia that I used to read about where right. machines do all the work and we just sit around and chillax, and that's the only time I've ever used that word, um, <laughs> is actually possible, uh, where yeah. things are essentially free because machines are doing them and no one has to be paid, right. as silly we're, as we're that sounds. becoming free. I mean, you know, think of, you know, Wikipedia. You know, your iPhone has access to, to really the, most of the knowledge that's been assembled in, in all of human history and to the music and entertainment that people are creating all over the world in a way that, you know, the, the Rockefellers, the richest kings in the past, wouldn't have had access to that. And, and much of it is free now, as you're saying. Um, and food is cheaper than it, than it has been in, in history. So there are a lot of things that are trending in the right direction. We are going through a disruptive period where, as we make this transition to a, a more digital economy, um, there are a lot of rough spots, just as there were um, in previous transitions, just as there were in the first Industrial Revolution, just as there was in the early part of this century. Um, but I'm, you know, I, I don't think it's inherently a bad thing for technology to be able to do a lot of the work that humans did. It has to do with how we, we manage that transition. It doesn't have to be a bad thing if we manage it correctly. Well, well the, the, where I was going to go in, in summarizing uh, your argument is that yeah. It's not a question of machines versus human beings. It is a question of distribution right. and managing this process so that the rewards are are shared uh, uh, throughout society. Now, right. is there a way to do that that doesn't involve social engineering, that doesn't involve economic intervention by the government? Uh, I mean, the kind yeah. of intervention I'm talking about, for instance, would be mass education on a level we haven't really um, – invested in in a very long time well if you call that intervention then i guess i guess you know i i would i would say we need that kind of intervention i don't really think of it as intervention though i, I think of that there's always been a race between technology and education um that's one of the reasons america became as wealthy as it did was that we all in the past century we've had the most educated workforce today we no longer do um so if we want to stay on top in terms of not just you know worldwide economic growth, but in terms of keeping ahead of technology, then we will have to invest more in education. And the second broad set of recommendations has to do with unleashing more entrepreneurial activity so that um, people can help identify ways to not race against machines, but race with machines. And, and that's really, although the book title is Racing Race Against the Machine, the, um, the real conclusion and the recommendations are that we can be successful by racing using machines using them to um, serve our needs and to augment our capabilities. There are ways, that's mostly something that, that the private sector sh should do, but there are ways that we could change public policy to make that easier in education and deregulation and, and changes in the uh, work environment. I I'm, I'm hopeful that um, our policymakers and our business leaders and our workforce will embrace the changes that need to be made, and if they do, I think we are in for a, a period of, of not just productivity growth, but also widespread uh, improvements in living standards. But it does seem to me that re reading your recommendations, and you've got quite a few at the end of your book, yep. that they involve a kind of societal decision and, and yep. policies uh, designed to guide this. Some of them are very business-friendly policies. Some of them are policies that maybe uh, the most wealthy who might have a devil-take-the-hindmost uh, or winner-take-all philosophy might not like so much, but it does involve society deciding that we are going to make sure 
the, the gains that come from technology are widely distributed throughout uh, our population. Yeah, I mean, I think that to a large extent that there, that's a choice we have to make as a society. Um, I think technology will make the pie bigger. How it's divided up is something that, that we have a lot of control over, and uh, it will be divided more evenly if the more people who have a chance to contribute to it, the more people have opportunities and skills to, uh, to use technology productively. Um, that's something I think most of us would like to see. So racing with machines, I just want to clarify, you mean something like NASCAR? Exactly. There's a combination of humans and machines together uh, that win races better than than a human could by itself and certainly better than a car could by itself, but but a human driver and a car together um, can go pretty fast. All right. Well, I'm going to go play with my iPhone. You were right. I do have one. And thanks a lot, Eric. My pleasure, and thanks very much. Eric Brynjolfsson is director of the MIT Center for Digital Business and a professor at MIT's Sloan School of Management. His new book is Race Against the Machine. This has been the 7th Avenue Project on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, and I'll be back next week. John Henry!